0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Read, Watch, Play. I'm James. I'm Corinne. I'm Justin. And I'm Cleo. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Haruki Murakami's Wind-Up Bird Chronicle for the first in our Solitude-slash-Isolation
1: series. What a weird book. Oh, boy.
2: What a weird fucking book. <laughs> yeah. But, like, good weird uh... and also bad weird. So Just, just weird weird. Uh, that's that's the first thing that
0: i'm really curious about i uh i had read this before so i kind of knew my my general feelings about it but what did what did everyone just think of the book
3: yeah um okay so there was a point in time probably in the last like 30 to 40 percent of the book where I was reading and reading and reading and like, you know, getting closer and closer to the end. And I was just like, God, it really just, we are not working towards a resolution yet. Like we are still not working towards a resolution. Like, like I can't see the climax of this book approaching. I still can't see it. And I'm getting so close. And that thought was constantly in my head. I read more and more and more and more. Like, you know, I was down to 20%, 15%. I was just like this book just honestly like if this book doesn't resolve in a satisfactory way and we're getting down to the wire here i don't i think i don't think i'm gonna i don't think i like it because it's a lot of just it's a lot of just reflection and like weird occurrences and things that are happening and not and, and a very like passive main character um which can be frustrating But in the final 10% of the book, there was an honest-to-God action scene and some resolution of previously unanswered questions that had persisted for most of the book, and it was okay. I, you know... I, I was a lot of going back and forth with myself a lot, like, all right, so this resolution, it has to be coming and it's either going to be great. And I'm going to, it's going to like completely flip how I thought about the book and like blow my mind. And then I was like, Oh crap. But what if it's terrible? And like, I, it just reinforces my belief that this book is got a lot going on and not all of it is, uh, is, uh, very fun to get through. Um, but you know, I actually came down somewhere in the middle, which was, it was okay. Uh, I can't necessarily say that I enjoyed the book. It was interesting. I don't think I would read it again, personally.
2: How about you, Justin? I'm still so unsure about how I feel about this book. Um, I, I think I can say definitively that I did enjoy it. But this is the kind of weirdness and just like this book is weird in a way that I understand a lot of even just in its pacing and the way it's written it, in a way that a lot of people would not necessarily enjoy. But it is kind of a style that that for whatever reason I, I get really into, um, which bodes well for me reading more Murakami in the future. But this is very much the way all of his books are paced. Yeah. Um
3: I do want to say, like, I was compelled to keep reading the book. Like, I did, I did want to read more and finish the story, but I, I can't honestly equate that to enjoyment of the book itself.
2: So. Um. But yeah, and I, the thing is, I was kind of half expecting there not to be a real resolution. Um. Just in general, which is probably why I was less like. Anxious about it, like more or less the whole. From what I have heard about Murakami is that the books just are very reflective and introspective, and do not necessarily like storylines and parts and and threads and stuff will will pop up throughout, and they'll seem important or they will be important for a while, and then they won't really get resolved. Uh, and so uh, I don't know. That just didn't the fact that that was a like the potentiality never really got to me while I was reading um but yeah i don't know i i think something that you had said off mike james when we were uh when we were setting up about the book making you think more like his books making you think more about yourself than uh than really the events that are happening in the book is something that kind of that really resonated with me it wasn't something that i realized but is very much, I think, what I was getting out of this book the entire time I was reading it.
1: I also have, like, very mixed feelings that I'm still trying to sort through. <laughs> um, mainly because, I mean, like, I can understand, and I, I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, <laughs> anyone who like, really loves this book, but I can understand why like non-Japanese people who don't consume a lot of, like, Japanese media would love this book and be like, oh, this is what Japan and the Japanese people are like, They're just, like, really weird, and they have these really weird thoughts. Like, I really enjoy this, not, like, this insight into this culture. (laughs) Because I've definitely talked to people who felt that way. Like, they thought that this book... And, and, I mean, definitely, I mean, the book definitely is very Japanese in some ways, but they kind of thought of it as, like, this prime example of, like, Japanese mindset and whatnot. And I never... I don't know. It's such a weird book, even for like, and given that, like, a lot of weird stuff, like, a lot of weird books and, like, movies come out of Japan, this is still, like, really high, like, levels of weirdness for that spectrum to me. Um, and I did, like, I I know, like, like Corinne said, I really also enjoyed, like, I wanted to keep reading more to figure out what was going to happen, even though this isn't really a book about, like, things that happen, like, the events aren't, you know, super dramatic a lot of the time. A lot of this is just kind of floating from scene to scene, and those scenes are not always super connected. Um, like, the timeline is a little bit funny, and just yeah, the, main, yeah, the main character is kind of passive. He's very much a character who kind of floats through things rather than chasing after them. So, I don't know. I don't know what my Goodreads re- good rating would be yet. <laughs> yeah, I know it's.
0: A lot of Murakami, in my experience, talking to other people is the kind of thing where you either read it and you're just like, oh, this is really interesting and you want to do more and you like it right away. Or it's something that you're immediately just turned off by and the style is not for you. Or it sounds like the thing that uh, a lot of you are kind of saying is that you go through it and it's interesting and you're not really sure if you want to commit to it yet because you can see that there is merit there, but you also acknowledge that it is super bizarre. And not even just in that, like, weird things happen, but it is, these are very atypically, like, paced and written books.
3: Yeah, there are a lot of stylistic choices that um, always, to me, seem like big no-nos, like tense switching happened in the book, which, I don't know if that's a trans like a, a translation thing between Japanese and English, but that was very jarring for me. Like, he, it's told in the past tense for most of the book, and he switches to the present tense for certain sections mm. of certain chapters, and... Very, that was very jarring for me. Um, and then the other thing you always, you know, see is, you know, don't write passive characters. Like your, your characters can be, you know, your characters can be, can be weak or they can be despicable or they can be, you know, they can be any sort of negative adjective, but if they're pat, like passive characters are the worst sins in terms of like character types. And that was also very, very bizarre and at, at times very frustrating for me. Yeah. And then, you know, chronology and then just whatever the heck was going on in the third book in terms of like sequences of events.
0: Yeah. Just, man. Yeah. So for some context for that, which is actually something that we we definitely should talk about is uh, this book, not unlike his uh, later book, 1Q84. Four was originally published as three volumes, each published, I think it's like a few a few months apart. Um, and the English translation, uh, again, as with the the first edition, at least, of 1Q84, is one collected volume that is split not only into chapters, but into three sections, at which point all the chapters reset to preserve some of that idea of there being three books to it. So the the first two put together are about as long as the third one
2: just by itself yeah um the third one makes up like nearly half of the entire thing yeah
3: 46 percent.
2: yeah um and
0: also covers the largest stretch of time but also is definitely the most uh i don't even know how to put it, it disjoint yeah disjoint i think is is the definitely appropriate so just because it is the largest part of the book and it covers the most amount of time there are other ones where you'll spend chapters and chapters and chapters all within the same day whereas with this there'll be large kind of time jumps that you sort of have to piece together based on things that people say or the way they reference things or them saying like oh it's been about this long since i've seen this person and you say oh well you saw that person in the last chapter and then you have to
2: piece it's like oh well it's
3: yeah and like like, back to spring now it's even
2: been that long like i just remember starting the third section and it's like you know you deal with these incredibly you, you deal with a lot of a lot or a little amount of time in a lot of space in the first two parts yeah and then the very first chapter of the third book yeah. is eight two months, and a half six, seasons six, or so months. in like the first five or six pages yeah and then you're just like in the in the middle of winter
1: yeah totally this is also kind of a weird book because it's the tone is kind of dictated a lot more or a lot less by um Toru than it is by the other characters who he's interacting with <laughs> um so for instance like you have May who's like that teenage girl and those chapters tend to be a little bit like lighter and kind of like quirkier um whereas like you have chapters with the war veteran and, when, and his descriptions of his experiences in World War II, and those are definitely much, much darker. And then even, like, you have these, uh, you know, and this is not spoiling much because this is right at the beginning of the book, you have some kind of porny stuff going on. Um, but all these changes in tones are much more impacted by, like, the characters he's interacting with rather than, like, anything he's doing he kind of just like goes with the flow.
0: Yeah, I always think of the book as being in a lot of ways about the fact that Toru is not much of a character unto himself. He's really defined by those people around him and I think that's so much of why he feels so lost uh when kind of throughout throughout the book that I guess we can get into a bit more in the spoiler section. Um but yeah, I think that that's one of the big things in it, right? Is that I think in a lot of ways the book is about Toru kind of starting to take control of what's going on around him and moving away from being such a passive character. But at the same time, it, I think the degree to which he is successful in doing that is debatable. Yeah, uh, which is a conversation that we we can have a bit later. Um, and but also,
3: yeah, good. So, uh, I I mean, and also like we're told pretty early on that this book is going to largely be about, you know, being passive when it's time to be passive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in the first, like the first couple chapters, I think. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not, you know, it's interesting for a book to explore sort of the act of being passive and of getting yourself out of a state of passiveness. Um, But in my opinion, does not make for the best reading experience.
0: (laughs) So actually, to kind of talk about that reading experience and going back to Justin, what you had mentioned uh, me bringing up earlier, I think that uh, certainly before we get into the spoilers is kind of a time to bring up the fact that uh, I am. Am I the only one who had read not only this book before, but uh, any other Murakami book? I know, Justin, you've started
2: 1Q84 a few times yes but i've I've never gotten more than like twenty pages in. Hmm.
0: how about you Corinne?
3: I haven't read anything else by this author
2: uh, and Cleo no nope. so
0: one of the things that I really like about this author I've read uh not as much as I would like, but I've read kind of some of the the bigger ones and starting to work my way into some of the more the more deep cuts um and they get they get weird and deep um, i one of the things that really draws me to Murakami as an author is that by and large when I when I read his books this sense of books with relatively passive main characters is not always true and I think Toru is one of the the more passive main characters in in any of the books but certainly some of the strange tonal stuff some of the strange structural stuff are certainly themes in his style and there're definitely a lot of just broader themes that show up very often a lot of things like multiple worlds and one world being kind of like a dark shadow of the other in some ways or someone going missing certain character specific characters and certain character archetypes come up a lot a lot of these things that you start seeing coming up more and more and certain just visual imagery that he that he likes a lot but one thing that is also very consistent is the fact that there is very rarely a lot of a a lot of a plot. There's certainly a plot, and you can go through and say like, oh well, this is the book that's about the that starts with like the cat being missing, and that's about these or those things, etc. Or the one with these characters or those characters. But one of the things, though, that I like a lot is that as as I read these books, I feel like the experience is a lot more about you. It the book is not unlike Nine 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 in some ways, in that. I'm not always positive that there's something that each book is trying to say, and it's more this just very interesting, complicated object with which you interact, and that process of interacting with it is almost more of a way to be very introspective yourself in the way that you think about the ways that the characters are being introspective, the things that are happening to them, and then you kind of analyze your response to that, or you think about—you just spend your time so focused on trying to think through the book— I, for example, like I almost never now, uh, read a Murakami book without like a set of colored pens to just keep track of themes that are kind of speaking to me as, as I go. Um, I made like a really big elaborate calendar as I was, uh, trying to read, not trying to read, but as I was reading, uh, Kafka on the shore, which I think is my, my favorite that I've read so far. Um, and things like that, where it almost seems like it's a bit of a puzzle into itself. It's a very, I think it's a very personal experience. Uh, which is one of those things where I'm really curious, and maybe this is easier to get into after the after the spoiler break to talk about specific things, about what people thought the book was about or what they kind of took from it or what kind of experiences they might have had, since I think that that's one of the things that is really special about his books in general is that they are so strange and they don't really have that like very clear-cut path or story or moral, and in a lot of ways, really, that kind of traditional kind of rising action climax that corinne you were talking about earlier you felt like you were looking for this climax and this one does kind of have one but some of them they they just do not um and i think that the way that you kind of interact with that is the thing that i really think is interesting and one of the things that i always like to ask other people who are reading murakami um i think it's one of the things that i like a lot about this one is just uh, again much very much like some of the other ones it's it feels like an appropriately bizarre and complex puzzle with which to interact that gets you thinking about yourself or looking at the ways that you're doing it. And you just find yourself just very focused on trying to understand like, what are these characters talking about? Um, Like what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And trying to like follow those themes through and see what ones play out and see what ones you think play out that someone else thinks don't play out and realizing the points where you've actually, put a lot into the book and to connect these dots that maybe is or isn't there. Is that something that anyone thinks they could talk about without going into spoilers or should we?
3: Um, I mean, I guess I'll say that just on the topic of solitude itself, I mean, specifically reading this book and reading it through the lens that we're thinking about it as part of this larger topic, um, it it led me to the conclusion or at least the, uh, the proposition that passiveness is a key component of loneliness um that you know solitude and isolation are things that are very separate from each other but also very separate from loneliness because there can be there can be purpose and activity in solitude and loneliness um which i think if we had ended up playing firewatch for this cycle would have been very much um exemplified Mm. uh the sort of like you know being distracted from a lack of of human interaction um but it seems to me that loneliness is something that happens when you're forced to dwell on your separation from others so so i thought that was interesting
0: (laughs) yeah i which is great because that's not really something that i had ever been like the prime thing that i'd taken from a reading
3: but everything else that you were mentioning, I think, is going to be pretty heavily tied in with spoilers. I, say,
0: I think that's the really hard thing, because to really talk about the things that made you think something or another gets yeah, in a lot.
2: That's, I'm mostly struggling with coming up with something that isn't too spoilery. Makes sense.
0: So, should we, should we transition, then? Was there anything else that uh, anyone wanted to say pre-spoiler break?
2: Uh, All of us are, seem to be pretty ambivalent about this book, but I... Think I would honestly say that everybody who everybody should give Murakami a try. It may not Wind Up Bird may not necessarily be the best one to be the first Murakami book you you give a shot, but I think it's it's worth a, it's a catalog that's worth trying to dive into.
3: I definitely don't regret reading the book. Like you know, I I, I like that I could you know, read it. And there was a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of thoughtful stuff in the book. And that, I think that was valuable. It was a valuable book to read, but thinking about it after the fact, I can definitely say that I don't think I really enjoyed it. Although it was a compelling read. So, you know, take from that what you will, but I think I'd actually like to read something else by Murakami with a more active protagonist. Cause it seems to me that that's probably the thing that put me off the most. Although it also led me to my most interesting, you know, conclusion. So it's kind of a strange place.
2: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I honestly particularly enjoyed the fact that Toru was a a passive character because it's I mean, it's treated as this cardinal sin in fiction writing, which also means it's a thing that itself has not really been explored because everybody's like, well, you just can't do it. And it's like, fuck off. Of course you can do it. Everything can be done it may not be easy it may not be it may not be even be good but everything like can be done and i i honestly think that this is a passive character done in a way that is compelling the idea of watching this character sort of sail through their own life as every other person in it affects the actual change was incredibly interesting to me
3: yeah and as i've been saying interesting valuable but and compelling but not necessarily enjoyable.
2: Sure. I guess for me, those words tend to be synonymous. Like mm-hmm. I got a lot of enjoyment out of the book being that way.
1: I will say this is probably, I mean, for, for me, at least this was a good book or audiobook to multitask do. Uh, because I don't, if I had focused entirely on the book, I think I might've gotten a little bit too bored or a little bit too loose. Like, I don't know. Bored isn't the right word, but just maybe just anxious. It is like, the book made me a little anxious for whatever reason um but i did a lot of coloring and coloring books so that helped while i was listening to the audiobook cuz i am <laughs> I, cuz i am into that whole like craze right now the adult coloring book thing and there's something there is something um i don't know kind of nice about that pairing of like coloring and a coloring book doing something that's like
2: pretty low key while listening to this book about like a really passive guy it <laughs> just like a good match I can just imagine Toru sitting there and having someone tell him what's about to happen in his life while he's just coloring in a... God, in a I wish he had been book. doing a coloring book. At least he would have been doing something. <laughs> Besides napping and eating. Yes! I think that I think
0: that makes a lot of sense, though, right? As an activity that you would pair with something like wind up Bird. I think it's that same kind of thing. And maybe it's the same... It, this might be going back to just the way that I read Murakami, the things that I like about Murakami. But it seems like that same kind of a thing. It's just like, here's this totally self contained little project that you can work on that has low stakes and that you can just like think about and let your mind kind of wander and make these connections and those kinds of other things. Yeah. Now, I think, honestly, I think that listening to this as you're working on a coloring book makes a lot of sense. You know, it would be a little bit too
3: deep though, listening to this while meditating. Because so much of what Toru does gets him to this meditative state and is in itself an act of meditation. Absolutely. That I think it would just be too much and you'd go too deep into you too many levels down and then you'd be lost forever in that subconscious dreamscape that...
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be entirely honest. If I was like just sitting in my room with nothing else and like reading this book, it would have probably been at least mildly, if not vastly unsettling, and I would not have been able to... Like I would not have been able to do it that way. It just
0: uh, one thing I did want to point out, uh, just because I realized when you Justin mentioned that we were all kind of ambiv—when am- eh. you Justin mentioned that we were all kind of ambivalent about the book, um, I I actually I, I do like it a lot. But again, I also though know that I'm someone who enjoys this author's work as a whole, which is kind of a different situation to be in right like if you're if you're coming into this podcast and you're wondering oh should i read this and you're not someone who if you're someone who already knows they enjoy murakami books i don't think you're coming into this to say like oh but should i read that one it's like no you you already know you're going to so i don't know how much my my point of view is helpful to someone who's actually looking for oh should i read this or not uh i think mine mainly applies to someone who already knows that they're going to go and so which book Try would you
3: things. recommend to read first? Because I think the general consensus is wind up bird is probably a little difficult
0: if you're trying to get into the author. That's a really hard one because it's actually the first one that I read. So I guess in my experience, it's an okay one to read first. I, this actually reminds me a lot of what we were talking about when we read at the Mountains of Madness. And we were trying to think of like, we said, oh, well, Mountains of Madness is really good. But it might be like a really rough first Lovecraft because it's got these things. And we had a really hard time trying to think of what would be a good introduction, and I feel like I'm having the same thing here. I know if you're not particularly interested in the really, like, weird off-the-wall stuff, uh, Norwegian Wood is relatively low on that, Um, or at least when it does that, it's a bit more metaphorical. It's not as, like, central. If you really like the weird stuff, it's hard to recommend jumping into 1Q84 just because it's a really large book, but I think 1Q84 is also the book of his that i would say probably has the most concrete plot so if you are down with the like super bizarre borderline like sci-fi as opposed to um
3: kind of of magical realism yeah i would say
0: i mean i would generally categorize murakami as magical realism that's that's the term i was fishing for thank you yep no Um, problem catch uh, back but it generally i would categorize him as that but if the parts that are kind of really speaking to you are the parts where it really does border a little bit more on the magical than the realism. 1Q84 could be a good starting point. Again, it's kind of tough since that's a that is not a not a short read. Yeah, those are kind of the ones that I jumped to. I, I hate to say it, I would not recommend Kafka on the shore as the first one. It is my personal favorite, but I think that it, it maybe benefits from being kind of aware of what you're getting into and just knowing the whole like go with the flow mindset. Like there's gonna be a guy who makes like it rain fish. And that's just going to happen, and you're going to need to deal with that. Um, a major character in Kafka on the Shore is uh, Johnny Walker uh, from the Whiskey Bottle, um, and also Colonel Sanders. So it's it's. Like, I'm reading Kafka on the
2: Shore next,
0: <laughs> but then there are also those same like extended periods where the character just sits on a bus for a really long time and like thinks about the uh, the light posts, or like just hangs out at a library. Like I, I don't. I think Kafka on the Shore is superb i would recommend kafka on the shore as anyone's second murakami book i think is the really hard thing because i think that you're gonna have that really jarring like oh my god what the fuck am i reading like how do i deal with this for the first one that you do and i would really kind of hate to send someone into kafka on the shore that i think is so so good and cool uh to have that like by definition
2: rocky first experience yeah I don't know that there really is a perfect first Murakami book. Yeah. There are going to be a couple that should be the ones you do first and several that you should absolutely not. And you should really just kind of pick from the couple. Oh, if you want like a really brief taste, if you're going into this and you're like, I don't know if
0: I want to commit to like a 600 page book. Not all of these are 600 pages, but wind up bird is, uh, oh god it's like something in the strange library it's it's very very short like you could read it one sitting easy so if you're looking for just like a weird little taste that one goes way off the deep end but if you are looking for just like a tiny bit of what the weird elements of these books look like that could be a good one what is it
2: it's something in the strange library hang on i am assuming that the strange library is a collection of short stories written by murakami uh
0: no (laughs) Uh,
2: it's literally just called the strange library um It
0: is one single story about a kid who ends up, like, trapped in a library by, like, a goat man. Great. Already into it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the... I'm sorry, sheep man.
3: Oh, okay. I don't think that... Oh, fuck
2: that. Now I'm out. Yeah.
3: I don't think that the, the weirdness is what put me off of this book. But it's also, it's hard for me to point to a single thing and say, this is what ultimately prevented me from being able to say i enjoyed this um my guess is it's the passiveness of the character but again there was a lot of value in that so who knows
2: yeah i I mean i feel like this book is almost a perfect storm of you being like just kind of
3: yeah yeah it was just kind of like everything combined sort of it was interesting but just not there was too much there were too many too many things happening but it definitely wasn't the strangeness. I like, I like magical realism,
0: so yeah. it was cool. So, sounds like the consensus. Try Murakami. Maybe not start with this one, but if you want to, fuck it. Go for it. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. And then I mean... <laughs> read Kafka on the Shore next. Me personally, I'd say go ahead and start with Wind-Up Bird. Yeah. Do it. So, with that, we are going to be announcing our next
0: series right now, which is really exciting. So, it's going to be psychological horror. We are going to be reading Stephen King's The Shining. We are going to be watching Jacob's Ladder, and we are going to be playing The Evil Within.
3: This is specifically because Halloween will fall sometime in the middle of this arc. So this is, quote unquote, our Halloween arc. You know, with the amount of time between episodes, it's it's really hard to have like a specific Halloween episode.
0: So start getting ready for that now.
3: Yeah, it's going to be two months of
0: Halloween, guys. longtime fans will remember that i was unable to actually get through the first chapter of until dawn last year so but i'm excited there's a lot of stuff that i wouldn't normally go out of my way to to do which which i guess is the point of all this hi i'm james from read watch play the podcast you're listening to We were really happy with the summaries that we started doing back during our escape series, so we've decided to continue them here with Solitude. Like last time, we'll be summarizing the main narrative of the work, as well as providing specifics that are important to our discussion. However, we'll be leaving out details that aren't relevant to this particular podcast to try and keep spoilers to their bare minimum. The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle opens with protagonist Toru Okada having just quit his job. He spends his days taking care of the house he and his wife Kumiko rent in a quiet Tokyo neighborhood. The couple's cat, named Noboru Wataya after Kumiko's famous younger brother, has gone missing, and Kumiko asks that Toru spend some of his new free time to find him. During his time trying to find the cat, Toru starts receiving very sexual phone calls from a strange woman who seems to know everything about him. At Kumiko's insistence, he meets the Kano sisters, Malta and Krita, who may be able to help him find the cat. Malta, the elder of the two, is a spiritualist mainly concerned with water. Her sister, Krita describes herself as, quote, a prostitute of the mind, end quote, and starts to appear in Toru's dreams after revealing that she was raped by Kumiko's brother, Noboru Itaya. In his attempts to find the cat, Toru also meets Mei Kasahara, a teenage neighbor from down the block, and the retired Lieutenant Mamiya. Lieutenant Mamiya first visits Toru to pass along a gift from their mutual friend, Mr. Honda, who has recently passed away. While visiting, Lieutenant Mamiya tells Toru about a secret mission he went on with Mr. Honda during World War II, during which their commanding officer was skinned alive, and Lieutenant Mamiyu was thrown into a dry well where he sat starving for days before Honda was able to find him. As the days go on, Kumiko starts to work late more and more often, without explanation, until one day she simply does not return home. Shortly after, Toru meets with Noboru Utaia and Moltokano, who reveal that not only does the cat seem forever lost, but that Kumiko has been having an affair and wants to leave Toru and return to her family. Toru, however, does not trust Noboru Wataya and is convinced that there is more to the story, but is unsure about what to do. He spends his time talking with Mei Kasahara and sitting at the bottom of an abandoned well on a nearby property. One day, while Toru is sitting at the bottom of the well, Mei Kasahara closes off the entrance, leaving him for days in total darkness. As he sits, he is transported to a strange hotel, where he meets the mysterious woman who has been calling him, but is unable to see her. Before the two can talk much, Toru is forced to leave through a portal in the wall but is left with a strange blue mark on his face. After his experience in the well, Toru starts to wander the city, where he finds a singer who he saw perform at a bar years ago. He is convinced that this man has some symbolic relationship to Kumiko's disappearance and follows the man back to his apartment, where the man attacks him with a baseball bat. However, Toru manages to take the bat and proceeds to beat the man with it, possibly to death. Toru returns home with the baseball bat. Sometime later, Toru returns to the spot where he saw the performer and encounters Nutmeg, a woman who performs some kind of ritual for wealthy women, who offers him a job. Over the next several months, Toru begins helping Nutmeg perform her services in exchange for extremely generous compensation. Cinnamon, Nutmeg's mute son, takes care of Toru, bringing him groceries and preparing his meals, while Toru spends more and more time sitting at the bottom of the abandoned well. During this time, Sahara leaves home to work in the mountains, and the cat, who Toru renames Mackerel, returns. One day, a man named Ushikawa appears, claiming to work for Noboru Wataya. He says that Noboru Wataya wants Toru to break off his involvement with Nutmeg and Cinnamon, and, as a show of good faith, offers to put him in touch with Kumiko via Cinnamon's computer. After their conversation, Toru is still not convinced that Kumiko is acting of her own free will, and becomes even more determined to find her. He returns to the bottom of the well and is once again able to visit the strange hotel. This time, he is able to confront the mysterious woman and tells her that he believes that she has been Kumiko all along, and that she is imprisoned in the room by her brother, Noboru Otaya. As they talk, a dark force enters the room and attacks Toru with a knife. Toru fights the force off with the baseball bat that he used to assault the performer, and is able to free the woman from the hotel. When Toru reawakens at the bottom of the well, he finds that it has somehow been restored to prosperity and has begun to fill with water. Unfortunately, Toru is unable to move and begins to drown, but is saved by cinnamon. When he awakens in a hospital days later, Toru discovers that around the time of his incident in the well, Noboru Wataya suffered a stroke and is now in a coma. A few days later, Kumiko pulls life support, killing her brother. She is sent to prison, but Toru resolves to wait for her. All right, so after after that summary, time to get into spoilers for Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicle.
2: Okay, so I, I guess there's one question I want to put to the group, which is a super general question that I actually feel like I've never asked about anything we've we've like read or watched or played about. uh And then one pointed question for Corinne. Ooh. Uh, so... Ooh. <laughs> The first thing Stay is. Stay tuned for that. Did everybody here? Ha- did anybody or everybody here have a favorite part or sequence? Oh man. Ooh. I do, and I think it's also
1: in part my like my least favorite part, which is. Um,
2: All right. I already love this. Let's hear it.
1: <laughs> so, I. I mentioned this, I think, like in the last episode or maybe a few episodes ago, that I had gone to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, and that's like a very like American only like point of view of World War II. Um, so I've had World War II on the mind for a while, and so when Lieutenant Mamiya kind of shows up, and pretty much, I mean, like this book is a lot of like kind of characters showing up and telling really long stories about their lives, <laughs> kind of mostly unprompted. Um, and and Toro just kind of being like okay, like tell me the story and then they'll like stop the story and he's like wait, are you going to tell me the end of the story um but like yeah Lieutenant Mamiya describes um I I think it is partly he tells it and partly he also like um, explains it in a letter that he sends, right it was like half and half or about or it was kind of like told in two different ways, but um his experience during, like, the Japanese occupation of Manchukuo, Man- Manchukuo um, was pretty—I mean, like, that was very, very gory and unsettling in many ways. And the description—I mean, that was, like, also just like, a really good piece of writing because it was so descriptive and so disturbing because he's describing, like, watching one of his, like, fellow soldiers— be skinned alive um, for information that this is like not going to be given up and then it's not only that part but it was like after having watched this horrific thing happen he gets tossed down to the bottom of a well right? Is a well also there? Yep. Yeah. Yeah and he's just like hanging out at the bottom of a well like injured because it was like a long drop uh, thinking about shit and like, seeing the sun kind of hit on, bottom of the well only, like, for a brief moment during the day, and then the sun's kind of gone, and he's in a dark well again. And that whole, I don't know, that whole, like, section of the book, for some reason, I think because it was pretty different from the rest of the book so far, like, it just suddenly turned into this, like, World, world War II narrative, was really, it got to me because it was just so gory and, like, horrific but so well written and so like kind of startling because it had kind of come out of nowhere. Like I was not expecting that to happen. Um, it was both kind of like my favorite and my least favorite part because I was kind of really unnerved by it.
3: I gotta say uh, that was the, f- that was the first thing that came to my mind as well. When Justin posed the question um, was specifically the, the Mongolian section of the book. Mm. Um, that was the first thing that popped in my head and I go with my gut a lot. So that's my answer.
2: I I mean I well James I'm going to I'll close out.
0: Yeah it's kind of tough there's a there's a few moments that like I I really that I do really love that's that is like a a great one. For whatever reason one of the parts that always really sticks out in my mind is the the very brief bit where Toru sees the the guy from the bar again and follows him to his house and ends up just like beating the shit out of him with a baseball bat. I don't know if it's because I was reading This around the same time that I was starting to read Cormac McCarthy, but it feels like so often in media, right? Like a moment like that would be this big, important moment, this like baptism or rebirth or like significant change through violence. And that in this book, it's, it's not,
3: it's just kind of a thing that happens. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's, it's this big moment that feels like it ought to be really important and i i think in a lot of ways it it is but the book just doesn't really go on to deal with it right like this isn't this isn't the moment that toru likes takes control of his life or becomes less passive or starts doing these things or anything like that and you could tie stuff back to that in a lot of ways but it really seems like it's he goes through and he gets this gut reaction and it's one of those few moments he describes like this fight that he had with kumiko's father like way early on in the book like around when they got married and that, like, normally it's—you get to see he's normally this very passive guy, and then just every so often he kind of boils over and does something. And then that affects this change in his life. And this time it didn't, right? Like, he's just frustrated, and for whatever reason, he associates it with this performer because it's the guy who he saw the day that he knows that Kumiko got her abortion. It goes through, and he just goes and he follows this guy home and— beats the shit out of him i mean it it seems unclear whether or not the guy survived they always just say he like oh he like beats him with a baseball bat etc but i don't think that there's like a strong indication that he didn't kill a man at this point and it just kind of goes
3: i also i realized that uh earlier when i said um that the the very end there's like a scene of of action finally that i had been counting that scene as a scene of non-action and mm. i was like oh does that mean that there was another action scene and i have to say i don't i don't really think of that moment as an action scene i'd agree uh it the, cuz the fight is something that happens to him he doesn't choose it it's just a thing that happens and then he goes along with it yeah
0: like a dummy <laughs> well and i would say even then not only does he go along with it i mean he kind of picks the fight by stalking the guy um but then I would say even more walking into
3: his house just by walking it. He could have not, he could have not, he would have done so many things differently.
0: Yeah. Well, and that he then, after he gets the bat from the guy just beats on him for a while, you know, he could have stopped at any point there. It, yeah, it's, I, I I think that's the thing that I like so much about that moment is that it feels like in any other book, this would have been like this really significant moment for the character. And, I think it ends up being like a significant moment for other reasons, but I think largely a lot of it's significant comes from the fact that he gets the baseball bat and from there on he has it. And that this is like his, his weapon, this like say representation of his potential for violence. A totem. Yeah. And so through that it is significant and through that it's, but it's a, it's not that this is a character trait that we were unaware of before, right? Where we know that he has ha- every so often hit this point with someone and and gone too far, or has kind of become more active and taken this more active role in his life and said like, "I'm not going to deal with Kumiko's father anymore. Like, I can't deal with this family." And after that, they just never talked again. It it's such an I for me it's such an interesting, fascinating moment. And it's the one that I feel like I come back to most often. And there's a, I think there's a million of those fascinating moments in this book, but for whatever reason, this is, this is always the one that
2: I, that I return to not because of what it is, but because of what it isn't. So it looks like between the two of us, we have four moments because that one was mine (laughs) and you like Cleo to said all of the things I was going to say about that moment. Sorry. Um, I, I mean, I, in order to just to have something else although related to to the other is that i think it's really interesting to me that this book is almost a vehicle to hear the stories of these other people that are not toru like this this book is his story but arguably the most meaningful sections like ind- individual sections of the book are other people's stories And while Mamiya's was very good and very visceral and and had a lot of meaning and affected Toru in a significant way, I think uh, Kratos' story was the overall more interesting of the two, probably because of its inherent weirdness. Like, um, Mamiya's story was, like, a very believable, grounded story with, like, very tiny aspects of like you know weirdness or magical realism or supernatural anything right yeah uh whereas Kratos story is like 100 percent balls to the wall here's (laughs) some weirdness for you yeah uh it's like yeah you know i was born and life was pain literally pain all the time until it stopped being pain when i was a prostitute kill myself yeah yeah and then it was nothing yeah and then I was, and then I was a prostitute for a while. And then this guy that we both know, yeah. who is inherently wound into your story very tightly. Your brother in law. Yeah. Yeah. Literally well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then it gets really weird. Yeah. Right? And yeah. and then it and then it gets weirder. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess that's true. It, by that point in the book, you're kind of desensitized to the weirdness that has happened up until that point in the story. <laughs> until I like, cut, oh, oh, yes. I was
2: like, Yeah, I split in half and something came out of me and 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 hear, the best it, it, word
3: I have for it is rape, because it was a defilement of the mind.
2: Right. But
0: then she's very explicit that it's not
2: physical. Physical
0: rape. Which, and then it, I think it calls up this whole question, of like, well, doesn't seem like that distinction matters a lot. But clearly it
2: matters to her, or because, at least to the language. But I mean, I do think what matters about it is the fact that the, the meaning here is not that the sex was non-consensual, or that the sex was the problem. It was, it was the the this other thing right this other compromising thing the sex itself was like she even described it all as like like it like that it felt good in a lot of ways and that she didn't necessarily want to stop it until this like psychological aspect of it came into play right
0: I know that there are uh, a lot of people in readings that really take issue with a lot of the depictions of sex in the book and I think that that's That's totally fair. But I think that one of the big things that this scene tries to do is to make it pretty clear that this idea of being defiled that is important throughout the book is distinct but related to the separate thread of sex that runs throughout the book.
2: So, yeah. All right. That Mm -hmm. was glad I asked that question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The second question that I had which Corinne is clearly very excited for. So you read all of this book over the course of, what, two and a half weeks?
3: Yeah, probably. A about right.
2: period of time in which you did not leave the apartment or socialize.
3: Ah, yes. Mm-hmm.
2: In what ways do you think that colored your reading of the book?
3: Um, I mean, it made it difficult to get through because, um, you know, there's there's a lot of... I guess similar themes in Toru's um, at least surface level struggles in the book and uh, the effects of working from home and also like spending all of your leisure hours reading, so not leaving the apartment. Um, And just, you know, that feeling of, being in one place and not going outside and not seeing other people definitely put me in more introspective moods, I guess. Uh, and definitely made me think like, Oh, I'm getting so mad at Toru for being a passive character and yet I'm not choosing to actively go out and do anything or engage with anyone. So I'm mad at him, but really I'm mad at myself and like just a bunch of just a bunch of that typical, you know, self analysis nonsense. But I think I think there were parts of it that did hit a little close to home, not necessarily in a bad way, but just parallels that I could draw. Yes, I read a book about isolation and inactivity in a period of time in which I was isolated and largely inactive because I was reading a book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Funny how that. Works. But it was it was interesting. Like uh, last week, we were talking about the book, and you. This was we we went to see a movie, yeah, and you took you know took the train from our apartment to the movie theater and read the entire time you're on the train, and the train ride is roughly forty five to fifty minutes or so, and so you get out of the train, you buy your ticket and we're we're talking as we're going up to the theater, and you're like it's just really like it's hard to extricate myself from the mindset that I was in reading this book and to and to go from being immersed in this world to to going back into the into the real world in a way and i I don't think I ever hit that level of depth with the book. I don't think I was ever engaging with it so deeply that 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 was ever like a striking thing for me.
3: Yeah, I was very like discombobulated when I got off of the train and like, you know, I was around all of these people and I was like trying to find you and get my ticket and get up to the theater. And it was just very I was very disoriented. And it was definitely because I had been deep in the book reading on the train and I honestly I don't remember what section I was at at that time but uh, I was like deeply in you know the that world of like you know reality is kind of not as real in Wind Up Bird Chronicles and I, I, I brought that same sense of reality is not quite real into the real world when i went to the movie and everything was just weird for a little while and then it wasn't because i was out with friends
1: and doing happy fun stuff and seeing uh life of pets <laughs> so i think i might have had a kind of similar experience to you actually because i also work from home and i like never leave my house for the most part um and so yeah it's like it's weird to see like his kind of i mean he spends so much time, so much time at home, or just like kind of like out in that alleyway talking to May, um, that it's just it's hard to if you do stay home a lot and you don't like if you have a period of time where you're not really seeing other people that often, or people at least like outside of your immediate family. It's kind of hard not to see like your own life reflected in him, and since he's not like a super likable character, <laughs> that doesn't always feel great. Especially, I don't know, like, and when you, I mean, when you're alone, or like, kind of at least, like, not necessarily like alone, like you don't have any interaction with other people at all, but like, kind of daily, the majority of the time you spend, you spend kind of like in your own head, then it is kind of easy to almost slip into this weird unreality, where certain little things take on a much bigger significance, and big things don't really seem to happen at all which is very much kind of like this book it's like little things become really big because that's what he's focusing on or that's like what's being presented to him and like these large scenes by like just don't usually happen and so he has these weird mo- moments like going down into the well and then ending up in a hotel room i that's actually the one thing i wanted to ask you guys about is like how do you feel about the well scenes because i'm Pretty, pretty personally very fascinated by that because i mean I, I don't know whether it's like a japanese thing with wells but like think about like zelda you have um the well that you go down into during ocarina of time and then also like ringu you have you know girl climbing out of a well a lot of weird shit seems to happen in wells in japan or at least japanese media and i was wondering if you guys saw any kind of like significance in that other than like the kind of surface level obvious stuff it's like oh wells lead underground and you go underground in that kind of joseph campbell style of like going underground to like find your true self and go on a journey before you come back up with new knowledge
0: yeah i don't know it's i would say like i've had i feel like i've had different readings of the well on each of my readings of the book like i think that there's a lot i think particularly with the the tie to something like ocarina of time where you've got this sense of like going down into the well to like get to the shadow temple and like seeing things like seeing like, and you've got the, like the lens at that point, you're like seeing true things behind things that are hidden. We've got, I think it's a lot of that similar imagery to what's going on here where it's this sense of like going down, like deeper into oneself going kind of levels down, almost like what you were talking about Korean with like kind of levels down deeper in like a meditative state. um, And that, that being helpful there, I think also there's obviously that sense of, like, when you, like, you, like, look down a well and it's dark and you can't really see the bottom. And really that thing of sensing is, like, it you don't know what's down there, something coming up, like like you mentioned in, like, for stuff like uh, The Ring and Ringu and et cetera. Um, and then also that se- – I, I think those things go together, though, right? Like, that sense that, like, yes, there's a sense of the things at the bottom of the well are unknown and scary, and Toru going and like becoming like getting used to the bottom of the well and starting to feel safe there and the fact that he doesn't really have his real breakthrough moment at the bottom of the well until he's down there without the without the bat like he that he goes in and does not have that sense of protection that he is willing to set aside that depending on how you read the bat whether it's that that totem to remind himself uh, that he can be powerful that he can be active that sometimes that activity doesn't really matter, that he can defend himself, and that he needs to go in unaided to really connect with this. But also that sense of becoming used to it, of being the thing at the bottom of the well. You've got those moments when Mei Kasahara's talking down to him, and she can't really see him, and he's just, like, echoing up. And that, in this case, your protagonist is, like, the creepy voice at the bottom of the well that's calling up Um I mean, in something like uh, Joe Hill's Lock and Key, right? Like, you've got something being imprisoned at the bottom of the well, and that in a lot of ways, he he is imprisoned when May closes him off. Similar with Mamiya, where he is pretty explicitly imprisoned at the bottom of the well to die down there. Um, and being that thing imprisoned at the bottom of the well, as opposed to interacting with it, I think there's also a sense of just getting down deep into the earth into tokyo into japan i think a lot of uh uh, noburu character is very much tied to again be it tokyo or japan or just people or the world in general um and being this big like public face there's a lot of differences between the world of uh noburu and the world of toru where toru's world especially towards the end where Toru's world is this little neighborhood, right? Like, it's the alleyway and the houses that border on it. And that he occasionally will venture out of his world a little bit. But I think the most significant way that he ventures out of his world and into the world of Nubaru Itaya is by going down into the well. And I, I mean, you could read that as getting down closer to say, something scary and dark and underground or as getting deeper to, say, the heart of the country. You've got Noboru who's, like, associated with politics, who's associated with being on television and being very much kind of this man of the people who, by and large, the citizenship is really into and really likes. I It's one of those things where, it kind of, again, getting to earlier, it makes it really hard to say that there is, like, a reading of the book, which I know is not what you're asking for, but... um where it's it's so hard to even settle on one because all of these things seem to work right like in the same way that all of the characters are tied to toru in one little way or another whether they can hear the wind-up bird or they've got like the mark on their cheek or they sit in wells a lot or what what have you everyone seems like they have like those few little ties and you can go so many ways it the well is the big one that i feel like i can never i can never nail down with any kind of certainty Because I end up seeing so many ways it could go that I end up just spinning back to, no, this is all in my head. It's just... It's just a well.
3: The well also seemed to be the lowest state of activity. Like, the the literal, like, the least amount of effort that Toru could put into living his own life was sitting at the bottom of the well. Because again, I a lot of my thoughts on this book ended up being about passiveness, mm-hmm. um, and you know, all, like it's not even that he spent the whole time in the well thinking about things. He spent a lot of time just sleeping down there, and or sitting awake, but specifically not thinking of anything. And then he would think about things, and then May Kashahara would come along and be like, "Hey, you done thinking yet?" And, and he'd be like, "No, no, nope." I really haven't thought of anything worthwhile yet. Still got to think about more stuff. And I'd just be like, God, I hate you so much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time though, I'd argue that like the times that he's in the well is also when he is most active. I mean, one, because 95% of this character is thinking, but two, like going down, especially the first, like the first time he goes down to the well. And when, when we have the hotel room sequence, uh, the first one, anyway. Uh, and when he gets the mark and all of that, it's like that bit of time is, like, the most active that he... Like, ar- Toru is arguably the most active in the dream sequences he has in this book than any other time. Like, the the times that he is with uh, Kreta in the hotel room, in his, like, dream dreams, and then in these, you know, these, like well dreams where he's even more actively just like doing things in those sequences was it's just interesting to me that he's most active when he isn't literally sleeping and in a dreamlike state
3: or that he's most active when he's at his like lowest state of being also I like that he just kind of started everybody else going to just sit at the bottom of the well I love that the the first thing that happens after he after Kirito Kano rescues him from the bottom of the well is that she then goes down there herself and stays there for an evening. It's just, that's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. And, there then, was a,
0: and
2: then May does it later.
3: Yeah. There was a moment where I was like, is, is this what the book's going to be now? Just more people, like, just going and sitting at the bottom of wells?
2: I would kind of love that. <laughs> it's like, one day he walks over to the well, like, before the property gets bulldozed, and it's just, like, just Mamiya's down there. he's like, hey, what's going on? There's a line. <laughs>
3: <laughs> like... I don't know.
2: It Thankfully this book isn't absurdist comedy, so Yeah.
3: I mean, thankfully, uh I, I feel that <laughs> I have a bit of regret about that because I would have loved if this book had just become about like the latest craze in Japan, which was sitting at the bottom of a well. Which there was a period of time when um when he was being deliberately oblique about what was going on uh at the residence mm-hmm. after um uh, nutmeg, uh, Asakasa. After the Asakasas, like, purchased the place and set up the new thing, there was a period of time where I was like, is he taking her customers down to the bottom of the well? Like, is that the treatment? Because hmm. I would have really enjoyed that, but that was not, in fact, the case. Yeah. We were never explicitly told what it was, but it was not that.
0: Yeah, the well seems to be incidental. Yeah, it's it's one of those things I... One of the things that I I went through and and highlighted on on this reading were just all instances of, like, wells and water and up and down. Like, anything that tied to that prophecy, which is one of my favorite things in part because it's it's so early in the book. So, like, for context, that's page 51 in in my edition out of a, like, 607, 610-page book. So about a twelfth of the way through. And then the entire rest of the book is filled with all kinds of references to... Going up, going down, flow, water, wells—all these kinds of things that pull it together—and I would say most of them are are red herrings, or they're just things that like bring you in. Because overall, the prophecy ends up being pretty tightly fulfilled, just at the very end, Yeah. where he almost rounds, and there's an obstructed flow because there's a dry well, and then something happens, and the flow is unobstructive, and he should be—he should have been more careful sitting down somewhere where there's not water where it's supposed to be, and then you come to say, well, it's a dry well, so it's not supposed to be there, and then there's water there. But it feels like barely ever does like two, three pages go by without someone it, the Kano sisters, who are totally all about water, or going up and down in wells. I mean, up is way less common, I found, than down, but even just things about flow being obstructed, or there being something off about the house, or dry wells, or water being in places it's not it's it's all throughout the book and it just permeates it so much
3: is there a tower at all in this book
2: I I, don't think so not that I remember I guess the closest we come is uh, is the the Asakasa's like first primary location after Mm -hmm. she gives him the card true he goes like up in an elevator like pretty high like, like the 16th floor or something like that to where they work out of and May goes up to the mountains when she goes to work for the, the wig
0: factory. But right. that's not Toru though. But I mean may and I don't know. It's it's that same thing where I I can go through this book twice and just be like, i need to read it again and just think about that. <laughs> and try and put it together. And even then I think I'd come away with something different every time I did that. And because you've got all right, so you say like an obstructed flow maybe is May locking uh Toru in the well, right? where he no longer has a choice about whether it's time to go up or down. He's just stuck down, and that's where it becomes, like, really dangerous. Or maybe he needed to be stuck down there and really hit that point of desperation that Mamia does, where he goes through and he's practically dead, and he has these, like, revelations where he feels like the sun comes and burns away whatever, what was it, like, divine gift he, like, is owed as a human being right and the sun just comes down and burns all of that away from him and he's just like left empty what I, should think no I, wanna, I think i want i think i want to find
2: a dry well yeah right
3: uh i don't there will probably be <laughs> spiders i don't like spiders <laughs> <laughs> i have a I'm, lot of reasons to not go
2: sit at the bottom of a well i'm ju- well i'm just glad that's the the reason it's not it it, it almost makes it sound like if not for the spiders yeah okay you know yeah, what sure, Maybe i I'd would go, want to find I'd, a dry well i'd
3: go find a dry well and sit at the bottom and see what happened i tried at least once but except i wouldn't because there would be spiders
2: all right so we're gonna have to all find a dry well and then me or james will go down and confirm that there are not spiders and then uh before we get too far away from the well but i think the one
0: <laughs> it, sorry it, The one other thing, though, that I like the well a lot as imagery for is tied to the, uh, like, Orpheus and Persephone imagery that comes up pretty heavily later in the book, where you've got, like, the voice in the bed in the hotel who's talking about not wanting to be seen and, like, don't shine the light at me, etc., etc., and don't look at, like, the mysterious figure that uh, Toru fights in the hotel, and just that—and the entire thing is about— going it feels like it's traveling into the underworld right like down into the earth into the well to bring back one's i just the love of one's life like back up into the world of light right and that there's a bit of a twist on at the end that you know orpheus fails right he he looks back and that's why that's why we have winter right is the thing yes I, i mixing up those myths yeah um but so we've got a lot of those and I just, that that imagery comes up towards the end. I, I like that a lot. Cause that's one of those things where I feel like it's the kind of thing where the imagery is there throughout, but you don't link it to that until the very end there. And then you get the sense of going down. And I mean, music is always big in Murakami books, but you've got even just say like the, like the whistling waiter and stuff in that sense of like music as you're, as you're going in to get through various guards and working your way into the underworld in some sort of a a battle with whoever is ruling there to then go and bring back, you know, the person who you care for. I I like that a lot as one of those things where you don't you don't get the stuff that really flags it until the very end, but then you go back and you think about the rest of the book and you can kind of say, Oh yeah, no, it is kind of there the whole time. It's just there so lightly that you don't necessarily pick up on it until until it gets very very direct. Uh I feel like the other one that does that for me is uh atom bombs. Um a lot of this sense of splitting something in two that creates this dark force that leads to massive destruction. Um and that Noboru Ataya is kind of escalating that in that sense of well before you could do that and hurt like one person or a few people and that as he becomes more powerful he can hurt many, many people. Um, and just that the, the Nagasaki bombings are brought up a few times and that the tie to World War II and just that that constant association of kind of like the his process of like quote unquote like defiling a person being so tied to splitting them in two. Um, and then, you know, the sense of like, say, splitting an atom and releasing kind of this darkness and that that's that's the power that he has um, is something that I I had not really picked up on until until this reading. Um, but was another one where I liked a lot that I didn't put that together until towards the end, um, when they start talking about wanting to spread that and make it more destructive and hurting a lot of people and that it comes from pulling this energy out of the act of splitting someone, splitting someone in two. Um, but again, that you can go back and say, it's like, oh no, this whole sense of splitting someone in two and these references to world war two and, and the bombings at the end of it, um. Kind of have been there the whole time, which is something that I, I like a lot. It
3: seems like a lot of things are there the whole time. Like, I, I think I got really frustrated a lot. For like, for a character who does a lot of thinking, um, Toru doesn't seem to draw a lot of conclusions. No, he just like, God, it's like when Buzzfeed per, like posts all those like those like series of gifs. And it's always just like, because they're always like, you know, when blah, 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 reaction GIF, and then no contextualization or no conclusion drawn drives me nuts. (laughs) Sorry, I really hate BuzzFeed GIF articles. Um, But the point is, is that... uh, you know, or when writing an essay, for example, people always say, Okay, yeah, you can pull a quote in from a source, but then you have to, like, contextualize it. You have to do something with it. You can't just plop it in there and hope that everyone gets it. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of it was a lot of thinking and a lot of thoughts without a lot of conclusions. Um, so it, it feels to me that's why there's so many different ways to read all of these things and that occur and so many ways to think of them as different kinds of metaphors, because toru himself and therefore you know the narrator doesn't try to make any statements he just kind of says a bunch of things and then you can interpret them different ways Mm -hmm. so it's both interesting because of all the different readings that can occur and frustrating because it kind of just contextualize your 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 thoughts draw some conclusions don't just sit there and let them happen to you Again, passive character. Frustrates me.
0: <laughs> well, to bring up a different kind of character in the book, you've got say Toru who's extremely passive, but then you've got someone like Cinnamon, who I know you'd want to talk about. Oh my god, Karen, who is almost a bit too good at jumping right to conclusions. Perhaps without the work necessary to reach them that Toru seems so Cinnamon is in. the
3: worst character in this goddamn book. <laughs> He is garbage. I hate him. He can't speak, is extremely attractive, always perfectly addressed, moves with smooth elegance, is uh, perfectly good at communicating what he is trying to say or what he wants without using any words, and with using sign language as just sort of a front for his ability to just kind of inherently communicate. Um, And he is good at literally everything. Um, The book goes in, like makes a very big point of saying that cinnamon is, can just read up on something and then immediately understand it. And with just the bare minimum of actual physical practice to get the, like the motions down is then like a genius at it. He's this way with playing the piano, which is garbage. He's this way with, like, fixing, maintaining, and improving cars. So, like, vehicle mechanics. He's this way with um,
0: computers. But not picking passwords.
3: Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Passwords
0: are all, like, what,
3: three-letter words? (laughs) And what was the other one?
0: Oh, I don't remember
3: god i just
0: i just remember reading that and thinking that was thinking that was very funny
3: <laughs> definitely like got the sense that he had designed his own operating system like yeah. that's what toru was trying to get at like oh it was a labyrinth of cinnamon's own design he made his own operating system like it, he's such a mary sue and like i hate to say it but he is he's just good at everything He has no reason to be good at everything. He's, like, really attractive, really slim and slender and elegant, and perfectly dressed all the time, and always has, like, a really, like, friendly, like, helpful disposition, and loves doing all of the housework and, like, cleaning. It's just... That's just not realistic.
0: (laughs) Do you think that maybe instead of being a Mary Sue, he's meant to be a foil for Toru, who seems to be trying (laughs) to inhabit the same world, right? But is just not doing as good of it right i guess trying to be very self-sufficient he's trying to be that very kind of like relatively domestic i guess would be the word where it's it is taking care of the house it is cleaning up everything and that's what he was doing with with kumiko and that now he's just seeing cinnamon with nutmeg and that cinnamon has like elevated this entire thing to like an art form
3: yeah i guess mary sue's the wrong term i mean it gets at the the nature of the character which is unrealistic perfection but not the intent which is self insertion so sure i'm i'm sure cinnamon is there for a reason and you know serves a purpose and everything and like i was i was okay with him uh for For a little while, and I really, really loved that moment at the very end of his two backstory chapters, which you didn't realize were about him until the very last line. And like, I did a, I did a mental double take, and I was like, "Oh, holy shit! Wait, that's cinnamon!" Like, that was a wonderful moment, like from just a reading standpoint. Um, but when it started going into like, you know, he was he's great at the piano, and he's great at mechanics and he's great at designing his own operating system i yeah. was just like
0: <laughs> no and you just magically do everything
3: you just no just fuck off cinnamon the
0: other password is
2: sub <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a plus
3: uh, interesting point though when i was uh reading about cinnamon and like his like perfect ability to communicate um Bear with me here. It reminded me of um, Jeannie, the, I guess they called her, didn't they call her, like, the wolf girl? Or, like, the the, the girl who was found who had no language because oh, sure. her her parents had kept her in a state of, like, deprivation from her, all of her formative years. Anyway, I had an occasion where I suddenly became very interested in this topic and read basically the entire Wikipedia article, including all, like offshoots about genie it took a very long time there's a lot of stuff but one of the things that um came up when i was reading that is that people who knew her constantly said that she had an like un like in a a supernatural ability to make her wants and needs known without vocalizing anything Hmm. like she would look at something that some stranger passing down the street was holding and they would like walk up and give it to her which reminded me of Cinnamon in yeah, his sure. like unearthly way or like his unnatural way of communicating. So that's neither here nor there, but it was just an interesting connection that I, I thought of when I was reading.
0: I wonder if it's intentional.
3: I have no idea.
0: Yeah. All right. So with that, I think that's going to be our, our episode for Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Um, definitely come back for our next episode where we're going to be discussing Lost in Translation. And then after that, going into Gone Home, which I know everyone is really excited about, and then pulling it all back together for our topic for the series, where I'm positive we're going to come back to Wind Up Bird. Because I noticed that uh, throughout all of this, we didn't touch on solitude or isolation all that much. I mean, I know, Corinne, that was your your main reading for it, but I'm really excited to see how this works together with all the other ones. I think this is absolutely a book with a lot of that like solitude and isolation and i'm really excited to compare that to i'd say especially lost in translation
3: oh yeah yeah absolutely i'm really interested to juxtapose it to gone home though because like off the top of my head i can't the parallels for me i i can't see any i guess
0: yeah i feel like with lost in translation it's like there's that very big difference clear. between yeah exactly mm-hmm. but uh so i'm really excited for that it's gonna be good yeah but until then thank you so much for listening Peace. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RWP Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. Check out our Tumblr at rwppodcast.tumblr.com and look for our game streams on twitch.tv slash RWP Podcast.